Hey team, welcome to episode seven of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So today we're going to talk about how to make a commitment or a practice or receive one if you're the seller. So buyers, once you've sorted through your diligence and you've made a visit and you've decided that this is the practice you're going to make an offer on, you'll be making an offer for the seller to consider. There are several types of informal and formal ways to do this, and it's called letter of intent or the proposal to purchase. There's a lot of formal and informal ways to call it, but basically you're telling the seller, what am I going to pay? So we'll cover the key players in the process, how to communicate the letter of intent over, and what should be in there. We'll give you tips to how to keep the train on track and maintain the communication lines during the process. So, Mr. Charles Loretto. What's up, Christy? How are you doing today? Fantastic. Excited. You, oh, your intros are always so great. <laughs> That's why I never could do the intro. You're not going to hear my butt on the end, ever. You're so good. Thank you. <laughs> now, it's a, it's a good week. Uh, a little nervous week we've got. Um, Isabella turning uh, 16 uh, this weekend, and so she's got her first car. This is a little nerve-wracking. That is uh, nerve-wracking. Driving, and uh, well, my daughter, Death perception is an important part of the driving <laughs> process not really getting an a so you're keeping those set. lines of communication open yeah yeah uh-huh. we've had a couple of episodes where i'm just like punch it punch it let's just get through this <laughs> so yeah. well what's up in the christie world how's it going yeah things are good things are good just trucking along and summer and yeah. kids and yep. work and uh <laughs> so yeah so i'm excited to talk about this today because i actually have a few um, buyers who we're working with who are in this right now, yep. right? And so yep. it's a nerve-wracking process. And so yep. getting a lot of emails and calls about when we're submitting and, and how and, and have we edited this and, and, and what's the best way to say this? And right. so this topic is very pertinent in a professional world right now. I think you said it right, keeping the train on the track. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so first off, I think we need to talk about who are the players in the right. process, right? right. Um, first things first, and who do you need on your team at this point? So who are the players you see? Well, I think what's important, there's a lot of players. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that can sometimes uh, mess it up. And so obviously the obvious is the buyer and the seller. Those are the two but when you start thinking about the people that are potentially on the buyer side, you've got maybe a, a CPA that they uh, have a relationship. You may have someone that's on the dental consulting uh, role. Those could be two different uh, two different people. You've got the seller that could have the broker that maybe listed the practice. But then you've also got maybe the, the, uh, the seller, CPA, or financial advisor uh, you've got the attorney that represents maybe uh, the seller that could mm-hmm. be through the broker. Uh, then you may have the uh, attorney that's going to represent the buyer. It could be on the practice. It could be you know on the building. You've got the bank. I mean, there are freaking 10 different people involved in this thing. And so it, there's a lot going on and uh, there's a lot of people that can mess this thing up. Yeah, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So so how do you communicate, uh, and and this is a question and I feel like this is something that we try to sort through with buyers, is how do you communicate with all of these people and how do you make it not overwhelming and how do you, you know, make sure that there's no duplication of efforts, et cetera? Like what's your advice to a buyer or seller? So I think what's interesting, I've heard this many, many times that you get this advice in dental school. So some, somewhere around, uh, you know, you're a D4 and they tell you out of the gate, hey, okay, your graduation, here you go. You need to go out and you need to get an attorney and you need to get an accountant. And that's kind of your to-do list. And I mean, 
look, I think accountants and attorneys are good. I'm a partner with a whole bunch of them, so I got it. I just I don't think you need that level of you know a it's team like, around you. Yet. It's like what are they accounting? What are they legally? accounting? Exactly. <laughs> Point taken. Yes, you got nothing but that, and you're trying to get a job. So yeah, when you when you're building these relationships with these, in this case, the seller, is. That's it. You're just trying to build a relationship with them. These other players are going to come, you know, at a later time once you understand the deal. And so, again, self-serving, what we do is we're trying to quarterback, not just you, sometimes the seller as well, but all these people of when they need to be in, right? How much you should pay these people, uh, what experience, what should you look at? It's just the quarterbacking of this this whole relationship is so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the duplication of work is a question we get a lot too. Like someone will call and we'll have an initial call and they'll say, okay, so do I need an accountant too or do I need an attorney at this point? And so I think the difference between an advisor and accountant, obviously an accountant, a CPA, great value, a lot of advice they can give you if you have a really complicated, if you're maybe a second career buyer and you have a lot of complication or your personal world is maybe an issue, then maybe you need a CPA. For the diligence of the practice, you need a CPA who's also going to help you negotiate, right? And who's familiar with the dental industry, who's done this before, who can kind of help you from start to finish. If your CPA is not going to be able to look over the legal documents for you um, from an industry standpoint, not a legal standpoint, but industry standpoint and help you negotiate those. And so in this letter of intent process, the goal is to negotiate those terms and get them on paper, right? right? Right. And understand the deal. That's the difference between an advisor and an attorney too, right? The, The attorney's job, is to look over something and legally tell you, does this make sense? And am I legally covered from a liability standpoint or all the state issues and local issues covered? That's oftentimes not needed in the letter of intent process. There's right. a place for, for both of those, the, that CPA and that attorney. But the first things first is you have to have a deal right. and you have to get it on paper and you have to get both parties to agree. So you need someone who's competent in doing that. Well, so competent is important. Uh, experience is also, I think, part of the competence. So you know, the questions I would ask is, okay, hey, dental uh, CPA, how many buyers have you represented just like me through this process? Is that one, is it 10, or is it 100? Um, you know, what were, you know, some uh, some success stories or things that didn't work out? The same thing with, you just want these specialists involved. It, it's just so important when you're building relationships with the seller, because again, this could be a really great practice. It's just that remember, you're the one that needs to be communicating. You need to be you know, keeping this thing just on track with lots of phone calls and emails and, you know, personal text messages. You are communicating regardless of their advisors and regardless of whatever your advisors, you got to keep that relationship, you know, just, just really strong. So right. important. And so our personal opinion yeah. advice, right? Cause everyone can do this differently is that you need someone who can help you negotiate and help you understand the financials. Yes. Um, obviously we have financial analysts here and I'm a CPA. And so that's kind of part of our role here. An attorney you may or may not need until after, well, after the letter of intent. Sometimes, and we'll talk about later in this episode when that is, but first things first, you need someone to help you understand the numbers who most likely is going to help you continue throughout that process so that you're not engaging someone to help you. And then you need to engage someone else, i.e. more money. And then that person has to learn the deal. You want some continuity through the process. And so that's kind of our best uh, advice there. And I've heard you say this a hundred times, Charles, you want someone also, and you want to communicate to them, don't mess this up. Yeah. It's just, 
get the attorney involved um, and, and whoever the hourly person involved at the very last at the very last minute. And it's because you know if you give something to an attorney, kind of like the D four, make sure you hire the accountant and the, and the attorney. The last thing you tell an attorney right before they graduate is, no matter what you read you will find a mistake, okay? You're gonna find a mistake and you're gonna bill for it. Uh, they've never read anything that said, this is perfect. You, you wanna bring them you know, this this deal and say, look, it's a million dollar collection practice, it's, it's below the market price of 750, it's priced at 700, I like this seller. Um, the asset allocation we've already talked about, we've got the building negotiated, uh, I've got it ready to go, but I'm looking at this acquisition document and I need for you to look that over and I want to pay you a flat fee. But last thing I got to tell you is don't mess this up. Make yeah. this work for me. Are we on the same page? Yeah. And the riskiest time to mess up a deal is early on yes. when you're doing the letter of intent. And yes. so, in fact, working with a seller, so we're kind of on the seller side, so the opposite side, uh, the buyer had obviously needed advice and so went out and got a few different types of advisors. And one of those advisors was, and we'll talk about mistakes in the next episode, so I'm not going to get too much into the mistake piece. I'm going to focus on the positive, but one of those advisors was derailing the process and actually causing doubt in the seller's mind about if they wanted to move forward with this particular buyer because of these potential communication issues. But luckily, because the communication between the buyer and the seller was strong, they're both very transparent with each other and said, look, this is happening. It's frustrating me. It's causing me doubt. And the buyer chose to disengage with that other advisor and now they've moved forward and they're going to be closing. And so again, keeping those lines of communication open early in the process, especially in this letter of intent process is really important and making sure that you're not getting too much in the weeds or focusing on the wrong thing. And we'll talk about those mistakes in the next episode. So, uh, the letter of intent, um, LOI purchase proposal, whatever you want to call it, the goal of it, if you can think about it, it's like a skeleton, right? right. It's the big pieces of the puzzle that you know you need to agree on that. And then that document or that agreement or that bulleted list of terms, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. those pieces of the puzzle are going to be put together to see the big over overall picture in those legal agreements. So that's the purpose of the letter of intent. Can we agree on these, maybe let's say 10 to 15 material things. And once we can, now I give this letter of intent to said attorney and say, attorney, here are our terms. And can you please draft an agreement that fits these terms? So I think knowing that we're going to touch on a few of the most material terms and the things probably think about most, maybe some that you haven't thought about. And then I have a blog post that I'll post up with this episode that'll talk about kind of a more extensive list of things we like to see and what those things can do. I love your blog post, by the way. Thanks. So first things first, price and allocation. So obviously that's the number one thing. Like, what are we paying for this thing? It's the most emotional piece of the puzzle. It's the thing you're going to spend the most time talking with lenders about and, and thinking, oh my gosh, can I take on this additional debt? And it's honestly the thing that you probably are going to spend the most diligence on on the front end is validating that that price is reasonable or justifiable based upon the cash flows. It's like the price is always just, you know, we put it number one because it is number one. So it's so emotional for that dollar amount. It's Mm -hmm. 800,000. I really want 800,000. You know, I really want 825 or I only want to pay 775. You know, so it's, it's always funny to us because when we look through, we start running cash flow analysis of, of this deal. When you factor in the work back period of the doctor and factor in, you know, maybe how long it's going to take you to buy it. We talk about uh, maybe the building and the lease and all these other things. And like the two people are arguing over like $25,000. We can say, well, give them the twenty five grand. 
Yeah. You know, let's give them the 50 grand. Give them whatever they want. But if we negotiate these other three or four different pieces, we can actually show, you know, a more positive cash flow of, you know, maybe it's a 20 or 30, $40,000 a year. Yeah. But when you look at a long period of time, this, this is now hundreds of thousands versus 50,000. So it's just one piece. It's just this price. For yeah, sure. absolutely. And, and again, our role here is to remove some of that emotion because when you look at the debt service on the 25 K, does yeah. it really make that big of a difference? Right. You know, type right. of type of piece. The allocation obviously is important as well from a tax standpoint. Yes. Um, the problem with allocation is there's always conflicting interests. So buyer wants it to be one way. Seller's going to want it to be one way and coming to kind of what's reasonable, what's fair and kind of proposing something or putting limitations maybe on what can be intangible versus tangible in that letter of intent is important. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely okay to not have an allocation in a letter of intent mm-hmm. and those things will get worked out. If you can put it in there, put some parameters on there. Great. I'm not ever going to turn away a letter of intent because it doesn't have an allocation, but it definitely, I think removes a roadblock down the road. I think just making sure that this is going to be an asset sale. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So asset like, sale. Yes. <laughs> write that one down. And so then you, <laughs> if you don't have the exact breakdown of the, of the asset allocation, you know, if it's uh maybe a million dollar rack of 600,000 goodwill this amount of furniture fixtures. It can just be something in there that would be a fair asset allocation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ways to know it's not an asset sale is terms like you're going to buy a hundred percent interest in the entity or right. I'm going to sell you thousand shares of stock or right. so those are some kind of some clues that potentially are I'm going to sell you membership interest yes. those are words that might clue you in of whether or not it's an asset or stock sale I will tell you most dental transitions are asset sales right. um, but every now and then we run into one that's structured differently sometimes the seller's not even aware that it's being structured like that it's just that that's what their attorney put together because that's what their attorney is used to doing so so, so, so buyers make sure you're listening to this part the stock sale is not good for you we are looking for a asset sale a stock sale is essentially you're going to buy the business at post-tax dollars I mean you're not getting that business deduction to pay for this nine hundred thousand dollars million whatever the dollar amount is so say it differently if you're going to buy a business and the cost is one million dollars you could either get a uh, tax deduction for the million dollar purchase, that's an asset sale. If you do not want to go down that route, I, just, I don't want to get a tax deduction from a million dollar purchase, and you can <laughs> definitely go down the stock route. So uh, we're certainly here to advise you uh, through some of those decisions as well. So another issue on the letter of intent, um, the building. So yes. am I going to buy it if it's seller owned or uh, am I going to lease it? Right. What is that lease rate? Um, here, the important thing is if you're going to buy the building, do we know what it's worth? Um, and putting language that you'll pay fair market value for that building. Fair, uh, fair market. Uh, we want to lease something that's fair, and we want to buy something that's fair. Yeah. It's probably the easiest part of uh, this process. Should be. It, it should be. You're right. Yeah. Um, it's because of comps and everything. We can see that it's uh, two thousand square feet. It's uh, the going rate is uh, you know twenty bucks a foot. It's it's forty thousand dollars divided by twelve. Here's the re- here here's the amount that probably more than likely yeah. is going to be the lease rate and so same thing with the building purchase is two thousand square feet and you know going comps are two hundred bucks a foot. We should be looking at this building for sale for around four hundred thousand. So it's important that in this letter of intent we talk about that. We're either renting or leasing 
or purchasing at a fair market value. Yeah, and that's important. It's rare that deals go sideways because of the building, but it happens. Yep. If a seller, it almost did. It almost did. If a yep. seller is requesting, you know, let's say five thousand dollars more than fair market value per month, that's a major expense right. to cash flows. Right. And so, again, fair market value. If that's in a letter of intent, then that does protect you because that's what you're agreeing to. You're not agreeing to some flat number unless you've pulled comps and you know that flat number is reasonable. Right. for the area. Another thing is the seller's work back, mm-hmm. right? Are, how are they going to help you transition? Are mm-hmm. they going to do clinical work? Are they going to just be there administratively to help right. you transition? Is their time part of the practice purchase price? Or are you paying them a per diem? Or is it two weeks or is it a year? Again, keeping those lines of communication open and understanding and having those discussions, not from a negotiation standpoint, but again, what are your transition goals? How do you see this happening post-closing? Understanding what that is, because if it's a $400,000 practice and the seller wants to work back four days a week, highly unlikely there's going to be one, the dentistry and two, the cash flows to be able to support that. And so being clear and putting forth something that's reasonable and fair to both of you and that meets your goals rather than not talking about it, getting through this process, and then realizing that you're at an impasse because you can't agree on that piece. Right. I mean, even a million-dollar practice that it's yeah. uh, with $400,000 of, of uh, net income and the seller wants to work back four days a week, I mean, yeah. that's a one-doctor really, really busy uh, practice. So we just need to make sure that we are... Uh, communicating uh, with both parties of what that's going to look like, have expectations for the seller, and to make sure that the cash flows are going to work for the buyer. So when you're buying a business, you always want to figure out what's the most dentistry you can do. Put that number of days a week that you're working on that practice, add that up, and if there's leftover dentistry this practice is doing, then we want to incorporate that that seller back working in the practice. Absolutely. And then, you know, the closing date seems like a very simple thing, but it depends on your lending. It depends on timing. Are you right. going to, are you going to close an ortho practice in the, or a pedo practice in the middle of July? Probably right. not. So just kind of timing of that. What's your notice period? Does it, does it give you ample time to move if you're coming from out of state? So these shift. So if you put a closing date in there and then something happens between you and the seller, totally okay. You can move it. But I think the, uh, the expectation of how long is this process going to go and can we meet it again is important. Yeah, I've seen deals that come across, you know, they're going to close essentially, you know, over a five or seven year period where it's a really long staggered sale. And so that might work if it's a multi-million dollar operation, but if yeah. it's truly an acquisition, you know, so just even the closing dates or the terms of how that's going to work is very, very important. Absolutely. Um, and there are other terms, retreatment, how are prepaids? What about AR? What about patient notification? Your non-compete, exclusivity. There's a ton of other things in, in a letter of intent that you can include. And obviously, the more you include, the kind of more, I think, the greater the skeleton for those formal legal documents. So I'll put up a blog post, nationaldentalplacements.com, to get that information. Perfect. Okay, so we talked about level of formality and all these different terms that need to be in there. Another big question we get is, what is the level of formality that we need? Like, what type of letter of intent do I need, right? right? Because there's, I think, I think I came up with like four levels of complexity. Okay. And so number one, this is kind of the least formal. I'm going to send an email or my broker or me or someone in the process is going to send an email saying, here are the 
five or six terms, material terms we're agreeing upon, and it goes to both buyer and seller, and buyer and seller acknowledge via email. Yes, we agree. Yeah, going back to those nine, ten players, it's just buyer and seller. The buyer and seller just get together. They're talking about it. Hey, I understand you want to sell the practice. Okay, yeah, it's a 900000 Got it. The terms, you know, uh, asset allocation, great. The building, fair market, great. I'd like to work back one day, great. Uh, we want to do this in, in six months. Great, that, you know, that works mm-hmm. for me. This is just the basics. We haven't done our due diligence. We don't, you know, we haven't hired anybody yet. But in, in these conversations that you're having, if it happens to, you know, the second or third visit or whatever you've had, and all of a sudden you're getting to some of those terms, it's one of those that you're just taking notes, they're taking notes, you're falling back up with an email and just say, hey, Dr. John, great meeting today. We discussed the following. I now was gonna take that information and start putting the team together to help me understand what the opportunity is so it can meet our goals. Uh, so just, it's it's so important, just those key little words, how we use and how we communicate mm-hmm. with each other again, can keep that train on the track or completely derailed. Yeah. So we're, lots of we's, lots of hours, lots of fares. Uh, this is our uh, communication we're having, and, and I think you, you, you set this uh, uh, kind of outline up perfectly, is um, it's, it's, it's the first piece. Just kind of getting this thing, uh, we both agree what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I think this works well whenever you have a relationship. You've been yeah. in the practice, you've known the person for a long time, you know, both of you are like, I don't need the formality of anything more, um, or maybe this is just the first step, but we definitely have had deals where there is no formal, what you would call letter of intent or purchase proposal. It is simply an email that says, here is what we have agreed to, X, Y, Z. Please move forward with drafting legal agreements, right? right? I mean, like at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to get to. It's just, how do you want to, how do you want to lay it out? Okay. Second level of formality, kind of more of a, now I'm not just going to put an email. I'm going to open a word. I'm going to put it in word and maybe have a little bit more lingo, but it's essentially the same thing, kind of more of a bulleted list where it's something tangible. I can print it out. I can send it over and same, same concept. We just kind of talked about just a little more formal. The next level, and this is kind of where I think most people fall, is a full letter of intent that either you draft or your broker or your advisor that you hire, someone like us, kind of helps you put together. Yes. It has a little bit more formality. It talks about all of the 10, 15 material terms. Right. Maybe it has an exclusivity or a confidentiality paragraph. Right. It feels more like this is something we need to pay attention to. Right. Right? Or a signature. Is and there's required. a signature. Signature. No notary, just right. signature. Right. <laughs> so I think most people fall in this category yeah. because... Most people maybe find their practice through going online and searching on a broker site. And so there's not the full-on relationship at this point when maybe you need to put in a letter of intent. And so both parties kind of need this as like their little security blanket to say, we've talked about this and this is a letter of intent and this is what I'm supposed to do as part of this process. I got a question. Yeah. So when does an attorney get involved? Let me say it this way. What percent of the times that you've been involved in these hundreds of transitions where we've represented these buyers that a, a full formal attorney has gotten involved to help them draft this letter of intent. What percent approximately do you see? Yeah, I would say probably around 15%, 15 percent maybe. Okay, so one in six or seven, you know, yeah. you, you may see. For the most part, they're crafting, you know, this email, this word, you know, maybe a letter of intent that they downloaded from the broker mm-hmm. or just working with an advisor that already has a template. 
Uh, when would you see that ever shift to where it is that 15 or 20 percent of the time where you might see the formal um, letter of intent, you know, out there? I would say the more complex the okay. deal, maybe large. So if it's a $3 million, $2 million right. transition when, and maybe it's a staggered or maybe there's something different about right. it. Maybe there's a building involved. You're going to work back a long time. There's just a lot of negotiation, something more complex yeah. where the investment and time right. that would go into having an attorney do that, because that's another thing. Attorneys yeah. take longer yes. to draft things, yes. right? I mean, no not a bad thing, nope. just a fact, yep. that they take longer to do that. And it's, it is an investment. It's a cost investment. Yeah. Yeah. And I said this earlier, but I like the dental uh, CPAs. I also like the dental attorneys. Mm-hmm. And I like them to work on flat fees. Yeah. Just don't, I, I, oh my God, I just went down the road for what not to do. We'll save that for next week. Save that for next week. <laughs> um, the attorneys that are just by the hour that have just this unlimited number and, um, you can go down this road and I'm just telling me it can be very, very painful. Yeah. And I think nitpicking sometimes too, a little bit kind of tires the other party and then, and we just had a letter of intent and the, all good intentions, right? Right. I mean, the attorney looked over it and they, you know, changed words. I'm going to change the word notification to announcement, you know, so that shows up in a red line. And so someone on the other side, even without the intention is like, Ooh, are we going to be this nitpicky the whole time? Cause I'm not sure. And so I know that's a, that's a mistake. We'll talk about it next time. Save it. But I think that the attorney drafted letter of intent has its place. What I've also had someone do is we draft the letter of intent and they already have an attorney they like and that they know they're going to use. So maybe they then just Perfect. send that over and say, hey, attorney, can you just review this and make sure there's nothing big? Right. It's cheaper that way. Yeah. And it is oftentimes a little faster that right. way. So I think there are different levels and the complexity of the deal and your relationship and really what you want too. I mean, there are yes. certain buyers and sellers who just want the full on formal letter of intent or they're not closing until a year from now. And so they have time to have this process happen. Yeah. If you're trying to close on a practice in 45 days, Let's not spend two weeks talking about the letter of intent, you know, and in formalizing that document. Let's move on to the legal documents. I know we're about to wrap it up, but if you're closing 45 days, you're closing in one year. I just can't stress enough. I think I've said three times. I'll say it four times. Keep communicating with the doctor. Yeah. Just, you know, have it on your, you know, outlook or calendar or something where you're following back up with that person. Just checking in how their day is going. You know things about their personal life. Ask them how they're doing. Something specific about their employees. Know their employees' names and team. Yeah. When you're calling an office, hey, it's Judy, it's, it's, it's Charles. How's it going? How's your daughter doing? Just making sure that, that you're staying connected because that staff and that doctor are looking for, is this person going to be the person that's going to transition you know, my life's work. So right. stay in and, communication. And it's a nerve wracking process for you. So and it's a nerve wracking process for the seller. Financial. Uh, yeah. And so the goal, keep in mind, eye on the prize yeah. goal is to develop a fair and reasonable plan to put yourself in the other party's shoes, whether I'm a buyer or seller, try to remove some of the emotion, whether that's you doing it yourself or hiring someone who's going to help you do that and make sure you have the right people on your team at the right time. Yes. Right. And let's not overwhelm yourself early on in the process. Cause remember, you got to have the deal to close the deal until you got to get there. And so that letter of intent process is, is really critical. So awesome. I think we covered some good content today. You did great today. Awesome. Okay. So check out our website on our blog for resources as you navigate the path to ownership. Thank you so much for joining us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook or LinkedIn. It's the easiest way to know when we release new episodes. Have See a great you guys. week. See you.